it started as a normal day. What if the truth about the greatest tragedy of your life was kept secret from you? A huge explosion occurred. This is the story of a scandal deliberately buried in the chaos of the Iraq war. What, what really just happened? Listen to NPR's Embedded podcast in its latest series, Taking Cover. Hi, my name is Jay Ryan Straddle, and my book is titled Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. Jay Ryan Straddle just can't resist writing about the Midwest. Like his first two novels, Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club is also set in Minnesota, and as with the first two, has a food element to it. I recently visited with Straddle about his love of the Midwest, what exactly a supper club is, and the burden of family pressures that parents can pass on to their children, and more. I'm Beth Goulet from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. How do you describe this book in an elevator speech? Can it be done? I mean, can you give our listeners a description of the book? Because I don't think I could. <laughs> Boy, the author is the wrong person to ask these questions. Uh, <laughs> I feel like it's a book about two restaurant families and the history, present and future of affordable dining in America, <laughs> but also told through the prism of what legacy means to a family and what our expectations are for the next generation. and whether or not we have the bravery and forethought to let them be themselves and decide for themselves what their future ought to be. I want to talk exactly about that because, you know, this novel is about a supper club, but it was also about family-owned restaurants, inheritance, you know, the assumption that someone will want to take over the family business. There was one point in the book when, you know, I quote, for the first time, Florence wondered how often she'd walked into a family-owned restaurant or business and entered a circumstance born of tragedy. So talk to me about the the burden of assuming someone else's dream. Wow, that's a great question. I love it. Yeah, the burden of assuming someone else's dream is that it may not be yours. It may run contrary to yours or it might complicate yours. I've always enjoyed stories that deal with that, that deal with family obligation. I think one of my First favorite stories as a kid growing up was one that my mom introduced me to in the James Joyce collection Dubliners, Eveline, this woman that does not leave for America with her, her lover because she's obligated to stay home and take care of her family. And that kind of theme really resonated with me because I saw a lot of that in my family, a lot of people making compromises, evident compromises on their own part to serve a family member, often one that wasn't particularly grateful. <laughs> Uh, as it happens sometimes, or one that expected, you know, had they um, obligation uh, or, or or enacted an obligation on family members saying, you know what, you can't go to college out of state, you can't move, you know, you can't have this job, you've got to stay here and take care of me, or you've got to stay here and take care of whomever. And that's a common theme. And it's one that's resonated in my own family. And it's one I saw a lot of growing up and one I experienced today among my friends. And now being a dad, I think about it myself. I think, oh man, I don't want to be a burden to this poor little guy. I had a lot of nerve bringing him into this world in the first place. Uh, I'm going to do my best to help him shine and thrive in this world he's inheriting from me. But if he wants nothing of it, I got to be okay with that. I can't blame him. You know, I guess we try to raise our kids to be the sort of people that will care about us enough to take care of us if we need it, right? But at the same time, they've got to live their lives. And becoming a father for the first time while writing this book made me think about those issues in a new way, some of them for the first time. The book is dedicated to my son, Auden, but with the caveat, 
if he so chooses. <laughs> if he wants nothing to do with his author father and his author father's life and values when he gets older, that's up to him. And I have to be okay with that. So talk to me about a supper club. Is that a thing? Oh, absolutely. Um, supper clubs are largely a northern Midwest phenomenon. Minnesota, Wisconsin, a little bit in Iowa. And growing up in southeastern Minnesota on the border of Wisconsin, there were four supper clubs within a 20-minute drive. And I worked in one of them as a teenager. I worked in one called the Steamboat Inn. And it was wonderful. The nice thing about supper clubs is that they're usually the best restaurant in its area. They're often rural. They're not always lakeside or riverside in the case of the Steamboat Inn on the St. Croix, but they're often in a scenic location and they're often out of the way. Uh, because they're often rural, they're a really valued third space for their community, a place you can go that's not work, that's not home, where you know people and you can be comfortable and you can sit there for hours and no one's going to be hustling you out of there. Quite often, especially historically, they had live music and dancing. So they were places where you'd spend a whole evening, not just have a meal. So the supper club was kind of an event space, but also, as Mariel puts it, a place where people often chose to spend the most memorable nights of their lives, celebrating a birthday or an anniversary or a graduation, a softball victory or a good day of fishing. The supper club was there for you and you could get a full meal, probably the best food, you know, in a 20 mile radius, at least, as well as a full bar. And you usually go home with leftovers. So it's a good value. <laughs> it ticks a lot of boxes for Midwesterners. And yeah, you could go in wearing a suit and tie, or you could go in in your fishing apparel, your softball uniform. And to me, they were the best restaurants I knew growing up. I mean, of course, there was also an aspect of, a, of my eight-year-old self that thought Red Lobster was the height of luxury cuisine. And that part of me inspired Jorby's, which was the chain restaurant in my new book. Now, Jorby's is closer to a Perkins or a Denny's than a Red Lobster per se, but comes from the same well where it had once been like a supper club. It had once been a family-owned independent restaurant that eventually franchised, became a chain, and now is something different than how it originated, but it's still clutching onto its origin and using it as a selling point. Whereas the Supper Club to me is the real deal. That is the type of restaurant that a restaurant like Jorby's is trying to convince people to think it is. <laughs> Whereas uh, Jorby's, you know, well, they have their place as, you know, affordable middle-class diner style restaurants. To me, they don't quite measure up to a Supper Club. Nonetheless, I didn't want to take too strong a stance against Jorby's. My mom was a waitress at Perkins when I was a kid, and I was utterly fascinated with that place. I hung out there a lot as a teenager. My brother ended up working there as a line cook. And so we have a pretty substantial family history with the Perkins in our hometown of Hastings, Minnesota as well. So it's certainly not without affection that I wrote Jorby's into the story. However, contrasting it against a supper club, in my mind, is not a fair fight. They are similar restaurants in some ways, but quite different in the other. And I want to live in a world where there are more supper clubs and less Jorbies. Can I describe it the way my character, Mariel, did? Absolutely. Go directly from the book? Perfect. This is how Mariel Prager, who is the uh, third owner of the Lakeside Supper Club by the time we meet her, describes it. Every summer weekend, 
the horseshoe-shaped bar and its wood-paneled lounge were packed with people fresh from fishing boats and softball games and cars that had driven up from the cities. It was a place where people chose to be on the most memorable nights of their lives, and it was a pleasure to be at the center of it all. On Mariel's watch, a proper supper club meal began with a free relish tray and a basket of bread with a round of brandy old fashions, and then a lavish amount of hearty cuisine with fish on Fridays, prime rib on Saturdays, and grasshoppers for dessert. You have a fantastic way of writing about food and beverage that makes me very hungry and thirsty. And you have a way of letting the humor of life shine through your writing. But in this book, you also incorporated some some serious themes into your work. You know, there was a forbidden homosexual romance or the difficult journey of conceiving a child or the tragedy of losing a family member unexpectedly, interracial adoption. Talk to me about achieving the balance of, you know, the, the funny with the serious and, and the food. Talk to me about achieving that balance in your writing. Well, it seems when I'm sitting down to write, I'm naturally drawn to the heavy themes first, and then delving into them, I go, okay, I need to laugh. Everyone, <laughs> everyone does. And my character's are the origin of the comedy. I feel my humor is less gags or setups or jokes than it is character inspired. And it is putting these characters in a situation that the reader will find comical or they'll find comical or both because that's just the way life is. And one of the things I learned as a 12 year old, when the nursing home a block away burned down, they um, interviewed one of the residents afterwards and something she said always stuck with me. You know, she just lost everything she owned, all her family pictures, all her possessions, everything sentimental and valuable to others and herself. And she said, well, when you've been through what I've been through, man, you either laugh or die. And hearing a 90-year-old woman say that when I was 12 really put it in perspective for me. I mean, imagine being 90 years old, having kept everything you valued that long and then losing it, like right near the end of your life. And she's laughing, like laughing to the field broadcaster for KSDP News. And I thought, wow, that's great. I want to carry that with me. I want to always try to have that perspective. And indeed, it's come in handy this month. A tree fell on our house last week oh, wow. out here in California. And we're displaced. And, you know, we've got all kinds of water damage because it fell during the rainstorm and you name it. But when my three-year-old son looked at the tree from across the street, the first thing he said was, can I climb it now, daddy? <laughs> And I went, wow, that's great. Well, no, <laughs> but I'm glad you thought of that. I'm glad that's your point of view. That you're not internalizing your parents' stress and you're giving us a new perspective on it, that a fallen tree is an opportunity for some. And I want to put that in my books because, yeah, sad things happen in life, but funny things happen in life as well. And it's that balance that gives the buffet of life its flavor. When I first read Kitchens of the Great Midwest, I was jolted by how quickly one of your characters died. Sorry for the spoiler for anybody who hasn't read it. But it did add a level of gravitas to the novel. And when novels, you know, when novels cover generational stories, like in Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club, death is natural and necessary for the story to move forward and almost to ensure that the novel is plausible. And I mean, I know it's it's fiction and but even fictional characters can't live forever if they want to be taken seriously. So I guess my question is, do you ever have a hard time killing your characters? Oh, absolutely. Oh, Lars was so hard to kill. 
Also because I wrote that chapter last. The first chapter of Kitchens of the Great Midwest was the final one I wrote. Oh, wow. So I knew he had to die. I didn't. I had no choice. I knew he had to die, and I knew he had to die when Eva was young. And yeah, that's not a huge spoiler. It happens on page 20. So uh, it killed me because I loved him. I based him in part on the priest that you meet at the beginning of Les Miserables. You know, the kind of guy that when he gets robbed says, oh, you forgot to steal the candelabra. You know, he's that he's got that kind of generous heart. And I really love reading about characters like that. I mean, we all enjoy a good, unlikable narrator from time to time and complex characters. But I've known a lot of good people in my life. I've been very blessed to have a life filled with generous, kind, thoughtful people. And I want to see more of them in fiction, <laughs> even if even if I have to kill them. <laughs> There was a point in the book when Julia thought of her father as being made up of a completely different country because there were parts of his life that she would never know. How do you, as a writer, navigate timeline? I mean, some of your chapters would jump around in time. Some would have characters missing because they had died. Is it difficult to remember who was in whose life when? It's not difficult for me, but I hope it's not difficult for the reader. That That is a delicate dance, and that's a that's a wonderful question. I really like the varying points of view that having multiple character perspective novel can give a reader. For example, in my second book, The Lager Queen of Minnesota, uh, my editor wanted to add a wedding scene. And I thought, how boring. I don't want to write about a wedding, uh, especially from the point of view of the bride. You know, That's who I was thinking I would have to write from. But one of my other point of view characters in the book was the bride's mom. And oh, what a wonderful point of view to write a wedding from. <laughs> You're going to get all these opinions, judgments. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was ended up being a delight to write. Here, I thought it would be a chore, writing about a wedding from the bride's perspective. And just, you know, it'd be stress, anxiety, this person where it needs to be. You know, it'd be emotional. It'd be, it, it'd be better than bad. But writing the wedding from the mom's point of view was was gold. And sometimes giving yourself that opportunity to explore an event from a different perspective also draws things out of the characters they're observing. You know, one of the first things I learned as a young writer in college was you generally won't believe what a character says about themselves, but you'll believe what someone else says about them. So it also gives you that opportunity to learn about a character's truth uh, that you may not trust that character to deliver themselves. I really got a kick out of your comparison of church and baseball and how baseball mm. might break your heart, but you believe in it anyway. So are you a twin? Mm. Are you a Twins fan? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Uh, we're undefeated so far. Sorry. Uh, I know you're in uh, Kansas. and uh, No, we have the AA affiliate of the Minnesota Twins. Oh, yeah. Oh, you do? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. You're going to have some great players this year. Uh, Brooks Lee. You know, you get to see him. He'll be in the majors in a year, I'm sure. Yeah, and you'll have Brooks Lee playing for you this year. What a, what a pleasure. So yeah. talk to me about this Church of Baseball. Oh, wow. Yeah, baseball to me was the first sport I was exposed to as a fan, like the first game, the first professional sport I was brought to as a kid. And there was a real reverence to it. I wasn't raised by people that were avid players or even really avid fans, but nonetheless, there was a scaffolding of respect around it. Uh, growing up in Minnesota, I descended from farming families on both sides. They were all Yankees fans because I, I guess that was that's what was broadcast in Minnesota before the Minnesota Twins existed. So the eldest generation, like the greatest generation, were all Yankees fans and then subsequently Twins fans. And everyone had a story about going to the old Mad on 
such and such day or seeing Harmon Killebrew or Tony Oliva. And for me, it was Kirby Puckett, Kent Herbeck, Frank Viola, and those World Series championships of the late 80s and early 90s. And that just gets into your blood as a Midwestern kid when you think, uh, you know, I'm not seeing a lot of representations in my parts of the country and culture, not enough in novels, very few movies or TV that represent our culture. So when our sports teams stand out, it's something. It makes you feel recognized and it makes you feel proud to be from that part of the country. Now, as, as Chiefs fans, you have nothing to complain about <laughs> uh, <laughs> lately. And, and that's a joy to see, you know, uh, whenever they make it to the Super Bowl, particularly if they're playing a bigger market team, I'm like, Go Chiefs, man. This is, this is a joy. The Vikings will probably never make it to a Super Bowl again in my lifetime. It just doesn't seem like it's in the cards for them. They always, you know, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole there, but the sports in my life were one way that I saw my home region represented in culture uh, as part of the world. And I relish that. And baseball was foremost among those sports. Okay, since we're talking about your home region here, let me get this straight. You make your old fashions with brandy. Well, they do uh, <laughs> supper clubs of the northern Midwest. I don't at home, but if you don't specifically ask them not to be made with brandy at a supper club, you will get brandy as the default. I've heard varying stories behind that. One had to do with a particularly enterprising and possibly charismatic liquor vendor, uh, a distributor who uh, had a surplus of brandy and uh, managed to convince bar owners to uh, work it in the cocktails where it was otherwise unknown. Uh, <laughs> but whatever the origin is, that's the supper club staple is the brandy old fashioned, which they just call an old fashioned, by the way, it'd be a tautology to call it brandy old fashioned up there. I just simply have to say that in the book for the majority of readers who don't occupy the Northern Midwest States and <laughs> haven't yet experienced a slightly sweeter old fashioned. I read in your acknowledgments that that Nick Petrolakis developed the Betty's Lemonade cocktail and you wrote, you know, as I mentioned, a lot about the old fashions and specifically Betty's cherries, which only sold one at a time in the heart of a cocktail. So have you had these cherries? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Nick helped me come up with all of that. He's a cocktail maven and historian, as well as a bookseller. And he has a uh, Instagram account where he develops unique cocktails for books he enjoys. And I thought, I'm going to commission him to come up with a cocktail for a book that's going to be in a book. Uh, no one had asked him to do that yet. And I was over the moon to be the first. So we thought about, okay, what's available to a bar owner at that time in that part of the world? What could she have done? And what could she have done that would be a little different? There was a particular brand of bitters that she would have had access to. And yeah, we just worked together to figure out something unique that she could have concocted on her own. And this is someone, this is Betty Miller, this is a woman without any previous bartending experience, someone who's just working with what she had, like a lot of people in the Midwest, <laughs> and nonetheless came up with something really novel and popular. And I hope to have a Betty's Lemonade or two on the road. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so forgive me if I have this wrong, but all of your books have been set in Minnesota, right? Yeah, primarily. Okay, so do you have any plans for other settings for future novels, or are you going to stick with the Midwest? The book I'm working on now is going to have at least some chapters set in California. It just has to. So I'm forcing myself to write about my current state, not just my home state, but I think it'll go back and forth. There's still going to be a Midwest presence in my next book. But my next book, as it stands now, is going to be the first book I have that doesn't take place in the central time zone. 
<laughs> I can't quit Minnesota. There will be chapters that take place in Minnesota and other states as well. Now, folks have definite ideas about, like, for Harry Potter books, the order, they place them from best to worst. And now I've been introduced to the order in which the Star Wars movies should be watched. I've never seen a Star Wars film. So is that the order? Four, five, two, three, six? That's what the biggest Star Wars fan of my life has prescribed. <laughs> yeah. I haven't tried it yet myself, but I called my college friend Tony Grazioso, who lives in Chicago. We met at Northwestern, and uh, that's what he said. I trust him. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, the book is Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. Jay Ryan Straddle, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you so much, Beth. It's always wonderful to talk with you. That was Jay Ryan Straddle, author of the book Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club, which was published by Pamela Dorman Books. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.